Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. 74, 75. One of my favourite pop songs from the 1990s. But of course, you're not here to hear about pop songs from the 1990s. You're here to listen to an interview that I conducted today. Today being the 21st of February, 2023. With Biff Byford, the singer from Saxon. A new wave of British heavy metal band who were at one point the most prominent band in that movement. But are still around today, still doing it, still releasing excellent albums, still touring, still gigging, still doing everything. And uh, yeah, I appreciate this might be your first time listening to Fagin Metal. So I'm not going to keep you actually at all. Here's my interview I did today with Biff Byford. So this is Feckin' Metal. You're very welcome. An Irish podcast, and I know you're touring Ireland soon. So nicely timed. Yeah, you're actually playing in Ireland in less than two weeks. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's good. We're looking forward to it. Uh, you, you've played in Ireland a lot over the years, of course, especially in the last two decades, but not since 2016. So I think it's going to be a nice kind of return for Saxon. Probably the longest time you've gone without playing Ireland in the last couple of decades. <laughs> Well, it's the longest time we, we've not been anywhere <laughs> with the COVID thing. Yeah. So uh, quite a lot of our shows are the first time we've been for like, you know, three years, four years. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the shows are pretty exciting. You know, people um, bought the album, you know, they bought the new album. Uh, a lot of people bought that. We've got the new stuff coming out. So, yeah, it's pretty... Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good time, really, to be touring uh, for Saxon. Very good. Yeah, so you're talking about, of course, Carpe Diem, which was out in 2022, and you're doing the Seize the Day tour, you're calling it, in 2023. Uh, and Ireland is actually the first couple of dates on the tour, so it'll be interesting for me, uh, as a fan, to attend the show where I don't know the set list in advance, because I'm one of those people who always spoils it for myself and looks up online what the band they're playing. Well, we have different set lists anyway, so we're not... We're not uh we're not as predictable as some bands are. So we change it. We change around all the time. So nobody actually knows the set list until maybe a couple of hours before we go on stage. I keep the set list fairly fluid. I mean, there's a, they're the main songs that are always there, but uh, each set list can be different. It depends, depends how we feel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've definitely noticed that with Saxon. I actually I saw you three times in 2016, and there were there were definite changes in the set list. But is that important to you to keep it fresh, to keep it different? I think it is. Yeah, I think I think it is because you know people always put you know put set list on night up to the show, same night sometimes. So no, it's nice to keep people surprised a little bit. The odd songs here and there that we didn't play the night before. So um, yeah, it's good. I mean, which show are you going to? Uh, well, I've begun to Dublin and Belfast, actually. Oh, you're in both, right, okay. The third and fourth of oh. March, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up a Friday and a Saturday in Ireland, so... Yeah, well, you know, we, we put the tour on sale, uh, the, the the last one, you know, last year, the Capitium tour, and it was, obviously it was postponed for quite some time because the album, you know, we put the album out and then we couldn't really get the dates together and, you know, we, we announced the tour and then everybody in sort of Ireland was like, oh, there's no Ireland. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I sort of made a promise that we'd do Ireland this year. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, you know, I badgered everybody to do it. And, uh, you know, the venues are bigger as well now. So, uh, yeah. you know, we're able to put in a bigger production. It's like, uh, you know, uh, the Ulster Hall in Belfast with the last time we played there was probably 1980, 81 on, wow. on, on the Wheels of Steel tour. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I don't think we've really done uh, a sort of bigger venue in Dublin. Maybe, I think we did the University Hall a couple of times. That's quite a big venue. But um, no, it's a good day. I mean, we're looking forward to it. I mean, the tickets are selling well. I mean, obviously, there's still some left. So should pick up this next two weeks. So it'll be good. Very good. Um, yeah, so the Olympia in Dublin, which you haven't played before, if I'm correct, um, you normally do. No, I haven't. The Academy. So, yeah, um, and I, like I've noticed in the last few years, you seem to be getting the larger venues in the UK as well, like uh, plenty of 2,000-seaters or thereabouts. Yeah, I think I think it, it, it takes a while to convince the promoters that we'll sell the tickets. That's the problem. So you have to, you have to give it a try, you know what I mean? Just give it a try and see what happens. But, you know... Um, yeah, with the profile of the band and the popularity of the band is is uh, is pretty good at the moment. So you know we're able to play, uh, you know, venues where we can put in a good lighting system and good a good production uh, instead of uh, you know just having a good old time in the clubs. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but sometimes masks are played at bigger venues. Yeah, of course. So you've been very busy yourself over the last few years. You, you did your own solo album. You released an album with your son, Seb, the Heavy Water album. Uh, you've done a couple of Saxon albums, let's say since 2018. Yeah. You are going to release a second album with your son, and you did a covers album, and you have a second covers album coming out next month. So, uh, uh, Yeah, I think because of COVID, it has been very busy. Uh, it's very very easy in COVID just to relax and chill, you know, and... Uh, and sort of not do anything. Uh, but, you know, I rallied the band a bit and said, look, we've got to write some music and we've got to do some stuff because, uh, you know, you know, it's not that people are going to forget you, but I think the band has to stay, you know, up on the edge of it all. I think it was good to, to work in COVID, uh, which gave us all the albums, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I was listening to you on a podcast recently. You did a Metal Global with George Botas and you were talking about just keeping the people interested. So is this something like doing the covers albums? Is this something just to keep the interest up in Saxon? Well, it's good fun, really, to do those albums. The record company asked us to do. They said, what would you feel like doing a covers album? And I went, well, you know, yeah, we'll do a covers album. But we'll do it a little bit different so that we do a, an album of like every song you know, is either connected to Saxon in some way or that we're heavily uh, influenced or inspired by them. So that's the idea behind the album. So, um, and that's why a lot of the tracks aren't the tracks you'd expect us to do. Yeah. Because they're the tracks that we liked and tracks that influenced us. So, you know, there's uh, people go, why didn't you do, you know, why didn't you do this song? Or, or, you know, we, we don't do that sort of thing. We don't want to do... Uh, you know, the obvious tracks, if you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, there were some surprising ones there. I was surprised to see From the Inside by Alice Cooper. Uh, but I heard you telling the story that you were travelling around in a van back in 1978 and you had uh, three 8-tracks um, and one of them was From the Inside. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, the, and another one was ZZ Top Fandango, so that connects them well, you know, because there's a Stray Dog ZZ Top song on the album. So, uh yeah, it's just, just all connected, you know. I mean, obviously, Nazareth, you know, we toured with them in 1980, just before the Wheels of Steel album came out. So, mm. you know, we were connected to Nazareth. We played with them lots and lots of times. Yeah. I sang on stage with them a few times. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's uh, we're just connected to a lot of those bands. Sure. Um, what, what I found interesting as well recently that you discussed in an interview was that um, the phrase denim and leather you first heard or found in, a, well, it's not a phrase really, I suppose. It's just two things. But um, it was in the Jackknife Johnny song from, from the inside as well. And that may That's have right. That's right. inspired you to write the song and name the album Denim and Leather. Well, it just stayed in my head, you know. I'd never really heard that. So I don't think anybody put those two words together, really, denim and leather in the way that I put put it together for the song, mm. uh, you know, a song about our fans. And, uh, yeah, it was just in there, and I just suddenly thought that would be a great title for a song about our fans. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I remembered where I got the idea from. You know, I, I'm not one of them guys that think, oh, it was an accident. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's where the phrase came from, from, from Alice, you know. So, yeah, pretty good. Good. I was uh, having a read of your book there that was released in uh, 2007. I was just having a read of that recently. And you mentioned at the time when you were playing the pub circuit um, with your earlier bands like Coast, um, doing covers was kind of like selling your soul. And it was seen as maybe the easy route, but you maybe got paid like £500 a night to do a cover set in a pub. And some people saw that as a success and they almost sneered upon the bands doing their own material. And you said with, That's your, right. <laughs> with your own bands, you were playing for maybe £50 a night. And But you, you had a, a desire and a drive to write your own material. And I was wondering, obviously, of course, a lot of water is on the bridge, under the bridge since then. You've written 23 studio albums of original material, but... Are you doing the covers albums now because you feel you missed out on that? Or at the time, <laughs> was the temptation there uh, to play covers? I don't think so, no. I mean, we did, uh, I think back in, you know, back in the day when we used to play, we used to play the working men's clubs back in the day. Uh, I'm sure they they have and used to have the same thing in Ireland. I don't really know. But uh, yeah. you know, the, the working men's club scene was really good. Um, they had a lot of tribute acts. Even then, you know, mm. Tom Jones and Engelbert Umpelink and yeah. <laughs> Presley. But we were like, uh, you know, we were looked on as being stupid because we were writing our own songs. And, uh, you know, a lot of musicians that 
you know, weren't writing, thought that, you know, playing somebody else's songs was the bee's knees, but we wanted to be, we wanted to be one of the bands that they were covering, if you know what I mean. Yes, so, yeah. So yeah, we did a couple, I think we did the Hunter uh, freeze sometimes. Uh, and then the story behind that is we used to play the, uh, we used to play the uh, Newcastle Supporters Club. We had a little bit of a circuit, you know, that we used to do mm-hmm. every sort of six weeks. And uh, we'd play the afternoon sets, uh, the lunchtime set at Newcastle, and there was always a stripper on. And uh, right. we, we, uh, the band used to play the hunter, and uh, me and the rock group would sit out front and watch the stripper. So actually, uh, Graham Oliver would sing the hunter mm. <laughs> for the stripper, basically. So <laughs> that's the story behind that. So we did do one cover version, but there was a, there was a sort of, um, you know, there was a, some intent behind it, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Uh, but like, was the temptation ever there? Like, obviously, like you know, you had the drive to write your own material. But when you could earn ten, ten times as much money, let's say, from doing covers, did you ever think of? We oh, could have done, yeah, but we just weren't interested. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, me and Paul before. I think, I think, I think, Sob. Um, you know, the, the band that Graham and uh, Steve were in. Hmm. I think they did quite a lot of covers. But me and Paul were more into the proggier side of things. We were more of a, you know, a three. I was playing bass and singing then, mm. so we were more of a three-piece like uh, jamming band. You know, we do, we do stuff. Uh, you know, our own music. But it was very bluesy, if you know what I mean. With some, a bit of a prog rock feel to it as well. So, um, you know, when the band came together, we stopped doing. We didn't do any covers then. We just did the songs that uh, we'd written. So. It was um, it was just a natural progression for us. We didn't really think about it, tell you the truth. Right. We just did what we did, and uh, over a period of like a year, um, so we had a good following. You know, people used to come see us. Yeah. For our songs, uh, that was a band called Son of a Bitch, obviously. Yes, before Saxon. But people would come and see us. You know, we we went, uh, you know, we had a bit of a cottage industry going. We make our own posters. We had our own, you know, van, transit van, slept in the back, you know, all the uh, all the things you have to do to pay your dues. And uh, yeah, so we used to check, we used to charge a pound to get in, and we take the door money, and the club would take the beer money, and that's how we survived. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind if I read a quote from your book to you? Yeah. So you said it was good fun rehearsing above the pub until nine o'clock, then getting pissed twice a week. That was how it was. <laughs> It all sounds boring now, but that's where it all comes from. Playing in pubs, rehearsing solidly, talking to friends about music and having a circle of friends who become your fan base. You play locally and they all come to see you. And do you know what? I think in many ways that's still the exact same to this day. While the music industry has changed massively, I think that's still kind of the core of how a band starts from uh, scratch to kind of getting a following. And I, I just thought it was a nice way of putting it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, because... because it- you know, you have to get to that point where you are in a band that has a sort of chemistry and you're rehearsing and writing and just getting absorbed in the music. And then, you know, you're spending time together talking about that, listening to other bands. And that's how it all works, you know, that's where the influences and the inspirations all come from. And, uh, you know, each member of the band has a different, you know, uh, band or type of music that they like. And those those different steps of music when you're writing come into the come into the melting pot, and that's how unique things happen, you know, from that melting pot of uh, everybody's influences. Because you know, if everybody's a writer, then it works. It works. Uh, it can be brilliant, you know. And it can be it can be a nightmare as well, but it can be brilliant if everybody's able to write music. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, when did you feel confident that you could write songs yourself? Like, like, was it a gradual process or did you just think, like, look around at people that you were interested in, inspired by and think I could do better than that? Or how did that come about? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to, we used to play, we used to play with people's songs, obviously, uh, in, in the early days, you know, when I was a teenager, we'd play like Rolling Stones, things like Peggy Black and stuff like that on guitar. I was a guitarist when I first started, but, uh, you know, cream songs and stuff like that, just jamming around. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I always thought we could write songs, and I always thought that was the way to, um, that was a way to, uh, 
you know, become sort of successful, you know what I mean? But there was no, there was no rules. It was all luck and accident, you know, by just writing songs and playing them. And then the songs that people like, we'd keep them in the set. And then we'd write some more songs. And then that's how the set built up, uh, you know, over the, over the period of months, really. We did rehearse a lot. And then we were constantly rehearsing. So, you know, and then every day we'd be, if we weren't playing, we'd be rehearsing. You know, we had a, like you say, we had a pub. I mean, I think our roadie had a pub. We used to rehearse in the cellar at one point. So we're always looking for uh, places, you know, the the, the local churches. Um, mm. You know, they all had sort of church halls. We used to rent them. And, and you know, the vicar were always great at letting young young lads play music in the mm. village hall, church halls, because nobody else was using them, only yeah. for bingo. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was a great time, you know. And uh, when you get, like, uh, band members all pulling together, working together, it, it's... Uh, it can be great. So when things kind of started to take off for you then, and uh, the phrase, the new wave of British heavy metal was being thrown around in uh, the media and <laughs> magazines, things like that. Did you feel that you were part of a movement or was it always just you doing your own thing and the media created this movement? Yeah, I, th- I think it was us doing our own thing, to tell you the truth. Uh, originally, uh, you know, we, people came to see us and then, you know, a week later, we'd have a, a fantastic review in a newspaper. Yeah, you know, in one of the magazines. Uh, so you know, we were very surprised. We didn't know they were there. If you know what I mean? Mm. So it all started. Um, it all started really by by a journalist taking interest in like Jeff Barton and all them early journalists. You know, they used to travel with us in the van a lot of the time and you know sleep on a, a flat floor. Mm. So it was all big. Uh, no big quiet movement, you know, of young bands and young journalists, really. You know, Jeff Barton, all your Dante Benutez, and, you know, all, all those people, you know, were, were all around at that time, writing for the sound, yeah. Melody Maker. The NME never liked us, because they, they stayed with the punk movement yes. a yeah. long time, really. They didn't really go with the metal thing. Eventually, they caught up, mm. you know, we were far too, uh, far too sort of... Um, yeah, I don't know. Music, they didn't grasp it really early enough. Yeah. Oh, well, the enemy were always kind of a snobbier kind of magazine. Maybe they took, they took to what was. Well, sorry, this is just me from me reading. Uh, you know, people's books yeah. and magazines and stuff like. But uh, they took to what was maybe trendy, but in a cooler sense rather than the quality of the actual music itself. It seems. Yeah, in their opinion, yeah. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, so 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 what I would see is better quality music. Uh, they obviously didn't feature too much. Well, yeah, it just they did catch up eventually, you know, and then but so yeah, I mean there's always been a there's always been a more punkier sort of uh, rebelistic thing going on with enemy that I think they probably missed the boat in the early days of the of the metal music coming together. When the new wave of British heavy metal kicked off, you were releasing albums pretty much every year, sometimes twice in a year, writing a lot <laughs> of songs, of course. But just from reading your book, Growing Up in Honley, West Yorkshire, you've mentioned a lot of things that um, I, I was kind of surprised to hear from you, actually. Um, so you were talking about, you know, how the death of your mother affected you, um, how boys were brought up without affection. There's one quote, actually, that stood out to me. You said, the thing about the good old days is that they were actually shit, really. Um, you, you mentioned you were painfully shy as a child. There was a kind of introvert-extrovert paradox where, like, uh, you can play gigs in a large room, but you don't like being in a room full of strangers. And I was wondering, did that manifest itself into your lyrics? You're writing so many songs so frequently. Did these feelings come out in any of your songs in maybe a subtle way that fans didn't notice? I think, I think, um, yeah, I, th- I think I, I do write a lot of songs about, uh, you know, from a working class point of view, surviving, getting out of the, uh, you know, what are people expected of you. I think that comes with the, with the sort of shyness side of it because, you know, I'm writing songs, uh, writing lyrics about things I would like to be like, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think subconsciously a lot of the stuff, uh, because I was, a, you know, when I was when I was teenage, I was a big biker. You know, I didn't have a car. Mm. I just did a piece. I just did a piece for a, a magazine called "Your First Car." My first car was a was a bike. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all through most of the eighties, I didn't really have a car. I had a bike. You know, mm. my girlfriends would sit on the back and we'd go off and do things. And you know, if I wanted to travel anywhere, I'd either go on the train or fly. Really, 
or, or get somebody to drive, you know. So, <clears throat> yeah, I didn't really, uh, you know, so I was a biker, really. So uh, a lot of that uh, came out in songs as well, you know, the, mm. the freedom and the speed elements and, you know, the rebel side of them. And did, did you find writing songs gave you a way to express yourself that you couldn't do within the confines of a working class Yorkshire upbringing? I think, I think that my upbringing was very, uh, you know, my, my family didn't have a, have a car. Mm. You know, the, my uncle had a car and we used to go off in that sometimes. But we were very sort of, uh, you know, lived near the, the textile mill where my father worked. Yeah. And my mother worked as well, actually. So we all lived there, you know, within that sort of, community of you know the school was you know at the bottom of the lane so it, you didn't really have to go anywhere really there was a corner shop there you know there's no supermarket so yeah so everything was done in that area so you know i didn't see any bands and things until i started to get mobile on the bike mm. so on a motorbike so you know i was maybe i can't remember how old I was when i first saw the band but it, it wasn't like you know 10 years old or something like 11 years old because i couldn't couldn't get anywhere, you know. So, so that's that's how I was brought up. So, I think uh, you know, writing songs and singing, uh, you know, to myself, and you know, buying records with my friends and you know, singles, and watching, uh, you know, watching TV. Yeah, you know, there was quite a lot of programs on, you know, kids programs on then uh, around that time that were had a lot of bands on, you know, like sixties bands and early seventies bands. So, yeah, I think I think. My sort of musical upbringing. My mother was a musician. Yeah. She played piano mm-hmm. and piano accordion. So we had music around the house all the time. Uh, so it was pretty good, really. But, you know, the, the actual life that we had compared to people that were more well off was, was pretty shit, really. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I was happy, though, you know. Yeah. I, know. I wasn't unhappy, you know, but, uh, you know, I just always dreamt about getting out really most of your memories in the book seem to be happy you know but you're also honest as well so that's interesting you also lost the tip of your finger in uh, an accident in a weaving shed uh, when you were I did, yeah. young and i feel like this doesn't get mentioned a lot obviously tony iomi steals the limelight with that one um but uh, i had never heard this until i read the book yeah it's obviously my uh, my sort of right hand so it wasn't the, the hand that i you know, I was on the strings, the hand with the plectrum. Mm. It wasn't uh, quite as bad as as, uh, as uh, Tony's. No. I mean, Graham had his, had a finger off as well, end of a finger off. Mm. Uh, so he uh, struggled uh, for a while playing guitar. But for me, well, I didn't play bass with my fingers, you see. So uh, I was a plectrum player, so it wasn't quite as bad. Bloody hurt, though, but yeah, I got over that, so... I can only imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. and like I know your father lost an arm as well. It seemed like um, accidents, like yeah. physical accidents, were were quite common because of the nature of the work. People, the nature of the work that you did, uh, physical accidents, injuries, um, amputations, yeah. things like that. I know, like you were talking in the book about how somebody wanted to, one of the doctors wanted to amputate your finger below the knuckle, and the other doctor <laughs> right. eventually won out, and he's like, no, no, we can do a skin graft, but like, that obviously that's would have been right. much, that, much more of a hindrance that, had you that, had it amput- amputated. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, you know, when where I lived, you know, the textile factories and the coal mills, you know, coal mines, it's a dangerous place, you know, yeah. dangerous place, not so much now, uh, you know, well, not so much in the 80s, it sort of changed a bit. But I think in the in the sixties and early seventies, they were dangerous places. Mm. You know, people were being killed and maimed all the time. So you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't wasn't a fantastic uh, you know place to work. Sure. Um, okay. So sorry, I, I know I'm jumping a bit all over the place here. So Saxon released a, a, <laughs> a string of albums in the nineteen eighties, um, and. It's probably fair to say your popularity waned a bit in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And then, as far as I can tell, it picked up again in the mid-2000s. And I remember hearing quite a lot about the album Lionheart when it was out. And I around that time, 2004, I'd only kind of started paying attention to Saxon. I knew the name, um, but I kind of started paying attention. I remember reading a review in Classic Rock magazine and it getting a very good review. But do you remember a specific time when your fortunes picked back up again? Uh, or your popularity increased? Well, 
it came, it came, it came and went really. You know, it, it's a big in joke, isn't it? And, you know, this is our this is our fourth comeback album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think I think we 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 see the came back strong on the Solid Ball Rock album. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That's that's early nineties. Was about nineteen ninety. Yeah. Eighty nine. Yeah. So that that one was a big album for us. We signed with uh, Virgin Virgin Records, and uh, it was a great. It was a great. Uh, we hadn't really done much since before that. Really, we were just messing about, doing you know, just gigging around. Mm. Um, we had a couple of uh, we had one album that was pretty normally, you know sort of uh, average before that. So Normally average. Yeah, we came back strong with that. Yeah, normally average. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so um, yeah, nothing special. Quite normal is what I mean. Mm. Uh, well, it was wide like the wind cover, which is pretty cool, actually, but that was the biggest hit on the album. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that album came back. We, we sold we sold uh, a few hundred thousand of that album. It was a really big hit in Germany. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I think around that time we probably did a 10th anniversary tour as well, which was uh, pretty big. Mm. So, um, so yeah, that was that was a that was our first big comeback, and I think um, we sort of we sort of after that we sort of lost our way a little bit more. Things changed in the money management and stuff, and uh, I think maybe uh, you know Doug joining the band. Yeah. I think Unleashed the Beast was his first album. Yes. Which is a bit more back to a sort of uh, harder edged songwriting. Mm. Uh, but I think you're probably right. I think probably Lionheart uh, was the one that everybody seemed to like, you know, uh, and put us back on the map again, I think. Yeah. And I think from that point, uh, Lionheart to Carpe Diem, I think it's been a steady rise. Yeah, uh, all the way, really. Very, very solid albums. Yeah, to, I mean, to me, the the quality of the songwriting, I think, increases probably around Metalhead, Killing Ground, that type of time, um, and has remained quite solid since then. But I just remember that album, Lionheart, getting a lot of press. Uh, it had a very striking cover, actually, and I think that is probably a lot more important than people will give it credit for. Lionheart, uh, yeah, the Court of Arms, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's an idea I had, um, you know, to draw our own coat of arms, basically, uh, you know, steeped in. I mean, I think it's one of the first times we sort of uh, used that, uh, you know, medieval Saxon connections since Crusader, since Crusader, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, people went for it. And, you know, it, it, I mean, I, I think probably... Because I'm a bit of a history buff, I don't think Richard Lionheart was much of a great person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the name is fantastic, and it's um, and everybody knows it. You know, I mean, in in French, it's called in Lyon. You know, so it, it's a uh, it's a great thing to say, and it's a it's a it's a it's a great melodic uh, rock song, really. Mm, you know, it's mm. it's a great song. It's a strong chorus. Yeah, um, there's some brilliant tracks on that album. So yeah, I think. I think by the time we got to Lionheart, our, our songwriting as a band had come together and the chemistry was working pretty good. And yeah. I think Lionheart came out of that. And I think two um, guitarists in particular, uh, you know, their, their, their skill and their, uh, their mastery of the guitar enabled us to, you know, play more, uh, you know, technical you know, music really that's a bit more on the edge of playing, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And uh, I think I've kept to that. I think the boys, I've always, you know, kept the boys on, on the actual putting edge of their playing ability. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they're never, our boys are never, they're never just laying back and say, oh, for God's sake, let's just do some blues. You know, I'm always pushing them to put wrists that are like, you know, relevant on the edge, you know, of, of their capability. And I think that works really well. Pushing them uh, not to be pedestrian, would you say? <laughs> well, they are brilliant, and they do come up with great ideas. But I think sometimes they do need pushing. Yeah, uh, because, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to to stay relevant as a guitarist. Sure. Particularly, of course. Uh, so, 
I mean, no. I'm, I'm making that reference. I'm of doing course. it. For, I'm doing it for their own good. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm making that reference that uh, was uh, was uh, a quote from Harvey Goldsmith when you did the TV show Get Your Act Together. So you were doing, you did that in 2006, 2007, and. Um, I watched it there again last night. Yeah. I watched it when it was out, and it's an uncomfortable watch, I will say. Um, but yeah. one of your main gripes with him was that he described your music or your songwriting as pedestrian. Actually, at one point, you said to Harvey, your fucking jumper is very pedestrian, and your fucking trousers. <laughs> yeah, well, he did. He did uh, I mean, actually, the show really ended up being a battle between me and him, really. Mm. The van didn't really take much in it, really. I think the production company, uh, in all these programs, you know, all these Fly on the Wall programs, there's always a a format yes. that they stick to. Absolutely. And it's always that, you know, the, the guy comes in who's, who's the, the, you know, the, the guru, the, the genius. And not just our show, but everybody's show that does this format. Mm. And he comes in and you're, you're sort of... You, you know, you're struggling, and then he comes in and gives you advice. Yeah. Then, you know, you they give you something to do which fails, mm. and then he he does something that makes you successful or not, right? Mm. But with us, it was a bit strange because, uh, you know, their, their, fail, their failure thing um, was a gig in Lincoln, uh, uh, and they did it like an unknown band. Mm-hmm. And, and they invited a very young audience on social media. And they pretended that the, the Cure were going to show up, actually, was the, was the main thing. Well, it was anybody. But actually, we played, and the, and the gig was, was fantastic. Because most of the young, young guys had seen us before anyway. Yeah. You know, because we're on the verge of, like you say, we we're on that verge of sort of being very popular again. Yeah. You know, the profile. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, we weren't struggling. Mm. The, the production company got it wrong. Yeah, they thought they'd obviously never heard of us since the 1980s. But actually, yeah. we had a we had a massive following. The albums were selling great. Yeah, so we just used it as a promotional tool, mm. really. And uh, that's that show. So was, we didn't really need. I mean, although Harvey's a brilliant guy, yeah. we didn't really need it. What What I was going to ask you though, like, do, do you think it was a good or a bad thing for your career? So just to give you an example, I think it, I, I think I think in retrospect it was a good thing. Yeah, because we actually didn't look back. After that, yes. But I think what happened was, I think a lot of the press, uh, like the Kerrang people and you know Metal Hammer and everybody, they all came to that, and um, yeah, they all got pissed off because these guys were trying to put us down. Yes, and change yeah. I kind of and, I'd um, take the piss out of you a bit. I, I felt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take the piss out of us, and uh, you know. And I sort of knew what was happening, basically. So I was the one that was, like, basically telling them to go fuck themselves, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it ended up in the end, it ended up in the end uh, that everything was fine. You know, they did this gig in Sheffield and they more or less sold it out in three weeks and things. So mm. um, they couldn't, what I'm saying is, they, they did this stupid football match, which was our failure, okay, that was the, that was a failure element. Yes, of this yeah, story. yeah. That was awful, to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, we, we went through it, but we treated it like, you know, and unfortunately it was a Sunderland uh, uh, <laughs> away crowd. Yeah. And, you know, I think they were losing. so They were 2-0 like, really, really, down, yeah. You know, yeah, really, uh, really Hostile, nasty, yeah, yeah. 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 Please for saying, you know, don't say anything. <laughs> don't do anything. Just go out there, have a good laugh. And Harvey said, I'm coming out with you. And I said, I said, Harvey, Fucking stay there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to come out there with us, yeah. Mm, so mm. we made him stay in the dressing room. So we went out and did it, and uh, it was a failure. So, it, you know, that's what the show was, though. Mm. And I think that's the cringy bit of it when we're out there. Oh, certainly the most cringy that. bit of it, yeah, definitely. Although the other cringy bit is where they're going to get you to have a makeover and get your hair cut and all that. <laughs> but, uh... Oh, that's what, that was crazy. You were like, it was good fun, though. You were like, I fucking yeah. ate this. <laughs> Yeah it, yeah, it was good fun, though, because, you know, they had, we went down Oxford Street and read all these private fittings in different rooms of, like, stupid things. Yeah. But we got to keep everything, which is pretty cool, you know what I mean? Mm. We wouldn't wear anything that was that was bad anyway, so, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. I said to him, you know, we're not fucking green there. We're not going to wear a blazer and a red tie. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? We're not we're not going to do that. They were like, uh, yeah. I am made and have changed their image. I said, uh. go and look at I am made. 
I said, Bruce Dickinson's had his hair cut, that's it. Yeah. Actually, do you know what? There's when no I, image. When I, when I was There's watching, no image change with Iron Maiden. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> when I was watching that, I was like, who was your drummer at the time? Because I couldn't pick him out. And it was actually Nigel Glockler. Uh, it was Nigel. But yeah. I, I didn't recognise him with the long hair. And then when it came to the part where he was getting his hair cut, I was like, ah, <laughs> there he is. Because <laughs> right, yeah. I re- used to see him with the short yeah. haircut for the last, like, I don't know, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, so, you know, we, we, just, we just treated that show as a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And as a promotional tool, and actually it, it worked for us, you know. Yeah, I was going to say to you earlier, actually, that so you played Download in 2008, which was shortly after that documentary was out, and three more times since then. And... If I'm not mistaken, you hadn't played that or the Monsters of Rock Festival since maybe the first one, although you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, we played the third one. Oh, the third one, sorry, okay. We played two Monsters of Rock. Okay. We played the first one, and we played uh, one with uh, Status Quo, I think was headline. Okay, but... It must have been 1983, I think, or 82. Right, but do you think the mainstream publicity of that show would have got you on the bill at download or, or are those two things unrelated? Uh, I think, I think the guy that runs it uh, is aware that we were on the first one. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the thing with download, you know, they have, they have the pick of, of all bands, don't they? You know, so, Oh yeah. Uh, and it's difficult for festival to choose a bill, you know, because there aren't that many festivals uh, of that size in the UK mm. that do a sort of, uh, you know, rock music really. Mm. Uh, so it's difficult, but yeah, I think I think they are aware, and uh, you know, we always have to play bands played on for him, you know, the promoter, of course, and the audience, obviously. But we couldn't get a gig unless we played that song. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I like I like uh, I like download, and I like the Monsters of Rock. I mean, obviously, the Monsters of Rock was in the uh, area where the second stage is at download. Yeah, uh, right. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that's the headline that. It'd be nice to headline that second stage, actually, in that sort of uh, it's a bit of a bit of an amphitheater type thing. It's on a hill, mm. so you know it's it's um, it's good to do that. I'd like to do that, whether we will or not. I've no idea. I yeah, I, I saw you there in 2016, and you were at the time you were playing in a tent, maybe second to headline. But it was yeah, we were on before Maiden actually. Yes, and at the end you were like, "Let's go, let's go and watch Iron Maiden." After you finished, we headlined, we headlined the tent, didn't we? Yeah, it was rammed actually. That. <laughs> yeah, I remember that tent it was absolutely. It was absolutely rammed. rammed. Yeah, it was. It was. And they had to take the sides off, didn't they? Some people were outside it. I, I, just, I can't remember. They probably did. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. during that documentary, um, do you got compared to Iron Maiden a lot? Are you sick of those comparisons? Do you think they're fair, uh, or are you just tired of hearing it? Well. I, I, no, no, I don't. I don't tell because we, you know, we were, we were around together, and we were, we were sort of, uh, you know, we were sort of, you know, competing for the same audience back in the day. Mm. I think in the early days, I think you know, Saxon were probably more popular than Maiden around Wheel to Steel, Strong Arm Law. Yeah, uh, but I think seems... you know, Maiden stuck to their guns and uh, kept going, and you know, got Bruce in, and uh, mm. you know, I think, I think what Maiden have but uh, a lot of bands like like us are, uh, they have America mm. which makes a massive difference to them and uh, you know they're, they're huge now aren't they they've gone so huge so they are the chosen ones I suppose of the new wave of British heavy metal that have gone on to transcend uh, you know into that sort of uh, you know football ground uh, playing status you know they're massive so we don't mind being uh, compared to them i mean it, it's fair enough you know we we're, we're in some respects you know the lyrics are very similar mm. you know we, we both write historic lyrics and you know songs about life so you know we're quite similar in some respects but not in others if you know what i mean true uh, but like somebody said to me recently and i i, I noted it down it was a great uh, phrase and it's comparison is the thief of joy and i i feel that is the way for many things um in my life and people are always trying to compare things to one another but at the same time it like the success of iron maiden can take away the consistency of the quality of the saxon albums that have been released for the last 20 years and maybe the first seven or eight years as well so i mean it's 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 there's no point i don't think in comparing because it takes away 
the individuality of the two entities that you're comparing. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't, we don't uh, compete with Maiden in any way whatsoever. I mean, we play with them on festivals sometimes. We're mates. Mm. You now we know them quite well. You know, there's never been any animosity. You know, the, their manager I know, I know him really well. Born in, he's more or less born within the same uh, fellow Yorkshireman. Well, he's born quite close to where I was born. So mm. you know, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, he's done the band and him have done a brilliant job. Is sticking, you know, Maiden. I mean, they went through a, a pretty bad time in that 90s period as oh, well. Yeah. You know, so mm. not a bad time. They survived like we did. Yeah. They just weren't pulling the out of people that they used to pull in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they survived. You know, they got through it like we did. And, uh, you know, it, it, I'm glad that some one band from that era is, is, is so massive. Yeah. You know, it would be, it would be a bit. A bit shit if, if one band wasn't, you know. Sure, yeah. It's like Metallica are the big band of, of that 90s, aren't they? Although they started in the 80s. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, people see them, see them more of a 90s band with the with the Black Album thing, you mm. know. You know what I'm saying? It's just how yeah. people, different generations, really, are 10 years apart. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad made in the big, you know, mm. uh, huge. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, 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 it makes... Everybody's job a bit easier because people can, you know, young bands can look to attaining that level, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of final things about that documentary. Um, <laughs> you seem to warm to Harvey Goldsmith during the documentary. You seem to be... Now, what I was going to ask you, did you get much coaching from the producers to be confrontational? No. No, you didn't? No. No, I think he did. Okay. I think, I think, the, produ- I think the production staff were coaching him what, what to say. Mm. To sort of wind me up in the end because that they obviously understood that that's what was making it watchable. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Conflict, uh, the, the complication between me and Harvey. But actually, I like I like Harvey. He's a nice guy. He's really good at his job. Mm. He's a fantastic promoter. You know, uh, it, it's just a TV show. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's just just. Uh, but I mean, and, I mean, and, you, you know, we uh, you did tell him to go. Fuck off a good Pardon? few times. You did have to fuck off a few times and call him a wanker. We did. I did, yeah, because he was, he, you know, it was getting on my nerves. But, you know, I was really telling the production people to fuck off, not him, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a personal thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just some of the things they were getting him to say yeah. were ridiculous. Yes, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, I do, yeah, no. <laughs> and, and, like, I mean, the, 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 as you said, the air guitar thing in the in the football stadium was cringy. Um I saw you did an interview with Eamon Holmes to promote it. That's that was just seemed like it was from another planet. Uh, Biff Byford talking to Eamon Holmes, <laughs> but you did. Yeah, it was weird. It was weird, you know. We'd like do all we I've done. I did a tour of uh, TV things, you know, yeah, things yeah, like yeah. Uh, like young TV shows. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's crazy, really. Yeah. Uh, but that that's what that's what they can do, really. You know, and uh, yeah, I don't think it really did us any harm. Uh, as opposed to it was a bit cringy, but I think people came out of it thinking, yeah, you know, these wankers got them to do that, but they came through, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. They're still, they're, still, they're still the lads, you know. No, I think so. And, like, do you know what? A friend of mine posted it there recently on a group chat we have because me and several of my friends are going to, to see you in, in Dublin and, and Belfast, and um, I was like, oh, that was a terrible career move because I remembered watching it back when it was current, you know, when it was actually on television right. on Channel 4. And then I watched it again yesterday and I was like, actually, I don't think that was a bad career move at all. I think it was actually good because just looking at yeah. your, your fortune since then and the types of venues you play, like, for example, playing Sheffield City Hall seemed to be a big deal at the time of the documentary. But since then, yeah. you regularly play venues of that size or larger in the UK. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. like, it, it, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it was a bad thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, at the time... You know, we, we had a discussion and decided to do it in management record company. Mm. And uh yeah, you know, I think it was all right. Yeah. I think I think uh maybe if anybody else had run it might have been a failure, but I think we rallied our troops together. A lot of people who were fans mm. came back to being fans again. Picked up all the new fans and just you know, people were talking about us as simple as that really. Yeah. Very good. I'm gonna have to go on it soon. I've got another interview coming in. Oh, no worries. Okay, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, that's fine. Um, so 
Yeah, I just want to say, so you, like, you're always touring, you're touring, you're playing again in, in Dublin and Belfast and uh, uh, throughout Europe. Um, it's probably the only time you've, you've had to take a break from touring was your health issue a few years ago. How have you been feeling health-wise yeah. since then? Uh, pretty good, pretty good, you know, yeah, pretty good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm coping with it pretty good, yeah. It's doing okay. I wouldn't say I was 100%, but it's doing okay, yeah. Okay, that's good. that's good to hear. Uh, yeah. Also, just quickly, great to see you at Keep It True Rising last year in Germany, um, a festival that I kind of thought you seemed a bit too big for, but you ended up headlining it anyway. And I know a group of people, they're about 10 years younger than me. Um, I'm 37, just for reference, and they all had a fantastic time. So you've still got uh, up-and-coming younger fans in, in Ireland. We all went over in a big group, um, and one of the lads said it was, the, it was the best heavy metal gig he's ever been to. So there you go. Oh, there you go. That's that's great. So let's hope we can pull it off in in Ireland, then. Eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Okay, look, I'll let you go. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, nice talking to you. Looking forward to seeing you. Might see you in uh, Dublin. Yeah, yeah and and uh, Belfast. Um, and look, yeah, I'm sure the shows are going to be great. And I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Thank you, Biff. Yeah, great. Okay, cool. See you later. Bye. All right, so that was my interview with Biff Byford from Saxon, the new wave of British heavy metal band. And I will admit that it was a bit scattered, a bit all over the place. In anticipation for the interview, I actually took so many notes. They were to my detriment. And I was looking at a document full of notes that were not really helping me during the interview. So I ended up focusing on a couple of topics Uh, specifically the Harvey Goldsmith documentary, Get Your Act Together. By the way, if you didn't know what the hell we were talking about during that chat, go and look it up on YouTube. It's called Get Your Act Together, Saxon, and it's in three parts, and uh, it's actually quite a good watch, uh, quite a good insight into Biff. More than anyone else, really, the other members of Saxon don't feature in it, except for, like, cameo appearances in the background, Um, and Nigel Glockler getting his hair cut, which has maintained to this day. But yeah, it was a good a good documentary. But yeah, I was I was all over the place in the interview because, um, well, Biff was a huge deal for me, kind of a big deal to get on the podcast. I contacted Saxon's PR companies back two plus years ago when there were only six episodes of fucking metal, and I asked them if Biff would be willing to do an interview. And of course, I got no response. This time, when I contacted the PR companies. Uh, of which there are three, well, two for the UK and one for Europe, in inverted commas, I uh, I got a response from all of them. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it was a bit naive of me to contact them back then when the podcast was in its infancy, but the work that's happened in between then and now seems to have stood me, and they got back to me straight away. Anyway, um, I really enjoyed that chat. I know we focused a long time on that documentary, which you might not have seen, but that's why I mentioned it there. You should go and watch it. And uh, yeah, look, it jumped around chronologically, but I was delighted to talk to Biff and I can't wait to see Saxon in Dublin and Belfast on the 3rd and 4th of March 2023. That's going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to leave you with a little musical treat at the end, like I like to do sometimes. I'll see you next time. Same voice